0: Welcome to Colors of Influence. I'm your host, Maylene Hamto. I'm talking with Dr. Cheryl Matias, professor at the University of Kentucky. Her research focuses on race and ethnic studies in education, with a theoretical focus on critical race theory, critical whiteness studies, critical pedagogy, and feminism of color. Specifically, she uses a feminist of color approach to deconstruct the emotionality of whiteness in urban teacher education and how it impacts urban education. Dr. Matias delivers national talks and workshops on whiteness, racial justice, and diversity. She is the author of two books, the first, Feeling White, Whiteness, Emotionality, and Education, which earned the 2017 Honorable Mention for the Society of Professors of Education. Her second book, Surviving Becky's, Pedagogies for Deconstructing Whiteness and Gender, came out January 2020 and has already been nominated for the American Educational Studies Association Book Award. Her third book, Critical Theoretical Research Methods in Education, will be coming out in late 2020. In 2019, I spoke to Dr. Matias about her research, and our interview is published in the Colors of Influence blog at colorsinfluence.blogspot.com. You can read more about the underpinnings of her research and critical whiteness studies on the blog. Our conversation for the podcast focuses on Dr. Matias' experiences and reflections as an academic in Denver, Colorado. Dr. Matias, thank you so much for being on the show. Can we start with discussing your interest in critical whiteness studies? Why is this particular focus important for you as an academic and as an educator?
1: I wouldn't say it was the most important thing when I came into Colorado. Um, Like I've said before, I was really excited to bring in my knowledge of critical race theory, culturally relevant teaching, as well as critical hip-hop pedagogy, and all these great strategies to um, urban teachers in the Denver area. However, I realized as one of the first, no, the first tenured line faculty of color in the specific urban community teacher education program, there were other faculty of color who were like part of special ed or or, or science ed, but not in the core um, teacher ed program. Uh, I noticed that many of our students who resemble the national statistics, which are 80 to 85% white. And in my case, it was all white, um, had issues or had some uh, effects of having a faculty of color, let alone a woman faculty of color, come into the space and teach them about race. So I knew that that was um, something that really stopped um, the learning of all the other stuff that I was supposed to bring in after teaching for many years in New York, um, Department of Ed, as well as Los Angeles Unified School District. So I knew I have to shift the focus to whiteness more so because it was these emotionalities of whiteness that really got in the way of learning in a more racially humanizing way. And so I had to go straight to the crux of the issue, deal with that first for people to realize that they were emotionally resisting learning about race and racism and its impact for anti-racist teaching, racially just teaching, and classroom teaching um, writ large.
0: Thank you, Dr. Matias, for naming that. I want to share that like you, I came to Colorado from a liberal West Coast city. You're from Los Angeles and from Portland, Oregon. I've seen and experienced firsthand your observations about white liberals who may feel far removed from racism because they're at the Black Lives Matter protest every night. However, your scholarship has really underscored the truth that liberal white people, non-black people of color, everyone really has a part to play in ending racism. And we can all benefit from reflecting on our own anti-black biases and beliefs and consciously working to address them. So I want to steer our conversation to a slightly different direction. I know you recently transitioned to full professorship at the University of Kentucky after spending the last decade in Colorado. Can you share your, your reflections about the transition and what you're looking forward to?
1: I think the dynamics that happens in the Pacific Northwest with the whole, this whole notion of white liberalism also happens very predominantly in the Denver, Colorado area. Both states uh, are very, are very, or both cities, particular cities are very boastful of being uh, liberal, as being democratic politically, um, being socially just. And it becomes so much a mantra of the whole liberal idea that it becomes nothing more than some kind, some kind of Um, showcasing of a safety pin on someone's t-shirt. And let me be very specific about that. I know a few years ago they were telling whites to put a safety pin on their t-shirt to show other people that they're a white ally to people of color. And that's, I couldn't help but laugh at these types of, you know, um, showboating type of phenomenons because it never really is for people of color more so than it is for whites to feel better about their moral sense. Um, so when I'm now that I'm leaving University of Colorado, having been there for ten years uh, and moving to Kentucky, it's quite interesting because the first thing people always said was, "Oh my goodness, you're going to the South, and the South is you know, you know how they are. Good luck. You you are so much more needed there," and I take offense to that. I grew up in L.A. and I lived in New York City and D.C. I'm a very Northern City girl. Um, But I took offense to the way they were engaging in a discourse of whiteness that positioned poor Southern whites as the only ones who can be labeled as racist. And this is nothing that I'm bringing up new. Scholars like Ricky Lee Allen has already written chapters about this. In fact, he has an article called What About Poor White People?, and him himself being from his ancestors coming from Kentucky in the Appalachian areas talk a lot about how middle class and upper class whites manipulate the discourse of whiteness so much so that they pull away from engagements of being racist and just plop it onto poor white southerners as if it's it's only relegated to them which is erroneous because there's been study after study for example like Eduardo Bonilla Silva in his famous book racism without racists, has uh, found that, in fact, after doing a national survey, middle-class whites actually held more colorblind racist attitudes towards people of color than poor whites who have had more interactions with with people of color, knowing that such stereotypes of people of color are not always true. So you're seeing it in white liberal discourses right now, right? Like I said, racist can be both in Republicans and Democrats. It doesn't matter. So um, I think it's really important to know that they're using a very different discourse, which is, oh, well, I'm an urban school teacher, dot, 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 under text. I teach black and brown students in poor communities. Therefore, I am absolved of ever being labeled a racist, even if I engage in racist practices on my own K-12 students. Another thing I hear in the Denver and Portland area is, well, I'm married to a Latina. Dot, 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 therefore under text, I cannot be a racist because i fuck one, you know? <laughs> and, and it's just like, um, and, and, and that has its own issues with re- regarding Bell Hooks and her works on eating the other were because of consumption, because gender and race becomes involved in that kind of um, um, s- semantic discourse. So I wanna be very clear. My move to Kentucky is so welcomed and so um, honoring. I'm, I'm very excited. There's very cordial people there. Um, Yes, it's going to be a red state, but that's not the issue here. The issue here is the fact that Whiteness is prevalent on all sides. It it manifests within whites, whether you're Republican or Democrat, whether you pretend you're a liberal, whether you pretend you're a part of the Black Lives Matter movement. We're seeing this in education where white women are constantly being the head of diversity, the chief diversity, the director of diversity, the diversity trainer, yet they have not really had the experience the the, intimate experience of being um, racialized in such a way. In fact, they don't even talk about their white racialization. So they can talk about, like in teacher ed programs, let's focus on the black and brown kids you're going to teach, rather than realizing that you need to learn about your white self and how that interpolates or interacts with the black and brown K-12 students you will then teach. You know, so... Um, I'll be very, very honest to say I'm very excited to go to Kentucky. I have no issues with respects to doing the work that I do. It's been very welcoming on faculty and staff. In fact, some of the faculty and staff there have taken my summer course on race and whiteness, you know, showing such great solidarity and support and wanting to know this a little bit better. At the same time, I'm going to say I had a lot of struggles in liberal spaces where, um, and these are liberal spaces where whites are still the numerical majority. I don't see this happening too much in Los Angeles. I don't see when I lived in New York city, it didn't happen as much. Um, it's don't get me wrong. It's still there embedded in different ways. Also like the New York city and LA embedded in, um, in, in class and, um, privilege. Right. But, um, I'll be honest with areas like Portland, with areas like Denver, with areas like Seattle, where the predominant racial group is white people who po- proclaim themselves to be liberal and democratic, I sometimes find it a more difficult situation because these folks pretend or like to assume that they are the so liberated and they're so down and they're so co-conspirators, they're so allyship <laughs> that they don't even want to take a step back to say how they might not be. They're bogarting or columbus our agendas and, and um, plans, and it becomes a dis- disgusting display of whiteness. And I've also seen this with people of color. In fact, I've seen it so ugly in um, Denver, Colorado, so much so that it's also been a factor of uh, of why I have a distaste, because so much of whiteness and the majority of white people has been for people of color in those areas to emulate and aspire to be that to be emulate and be part of whiteness, closer to whiteness. In sociological talk, Min Zhou would argue, this is an upwards uh, segmented assimilation theory, right? I wanna upward assimilate to whiteness. I've seen that happen so much. In five years of teaching my whiteness course, almost every biracial student who came into my course, black, white biracial, and other, um, other students of color who grew up in the Denver, Colorado area, literally after taking the course talk about how much they have learned to hate their own black selves or Asian selves so much. So they were trying to make um, relationships with um, whites, which were very um, abusive and unhealthy. And so I think it's really important that we go back and think, Hey, do we need a calto to whiteness such that they're always um, that they're always going to have the upper hand. They are going to be the leaders of, an issue of diversity for which impacts us so intimately. So that was long winded, but I hope I'm really capturing and we can go, I can get deeper with this, but the whole aspect of this whole liberal democratic city is, does not absolve it. It's not to say that you have a black best friend or a Latina wife or any, or you're an urban school teacher. It does not absolve you from engaging in whiteness and acting in racist ways.
0: Dr. Matias, I really appreciate you naming the issue of whiteness in the practice of diversity, equity, and inclusion work. As you know, I'm a management practitioner in the diversity, equity, and inclusion field and i've seen the phenomena that you described of having white people leading dni work or being diversity trainers and even if there are people of color in these dni positions they are usually folks who protect and aspire to whiteness as you mentioned they do not engage in the difficult conversations about race and ethnicity because it might make white leaders uncomfortable that's not the dni work that they do so I really appreciate that critique because it's important in this moment to be truthful to our calling to the work in order to create change. So, do you have other insights to share about this issue? So, yeah,
1: with regards to diversity inclusion
0: offices, di- diversity inclusion
1: um, positions, I'm not making the argument that they're not they're not relevant. Absolutely not. I mean, I'd rather they be there than not, right? <laughs> I think what the argument and the critique that needs to be had is that they're already managed by a, a white enterprise. And um, I know Sarah Ahmed in her book on diversity talks very clearly about this, saying that white, inst- well, let's just call them historically white institutions, knowing they have issues with the white supremacy and whiteness, a legacy of that will then institute these diversity office and by, by virtue of just having the office in and of itself is like, I have done, you know, my issues of, um, I have done my issues of race. Now, if it weren't the situation, that diversity officer would be the president of the university. You know, <laughs> so, and we're not at that space yet, you know, we're not at that space where we can say, that uh, bend the knee and move aside, you know, because a lot of people are holding on very strongly to power. In fact, I wrote an opt-ed um, online piece. You can Google it for the University of Denver, where I did a, a wonderful visiting faculty ship. And with such amazing and supportive faculty, staff, and students there, um, uh, they, I wrote a piece for them on entitled Bend the Knee Already and it talks about diversity and inclusion offices where they're refusing, refusing to listen to students or faculty of color who are engaging, who are surviving racist um, practices in the academy. And when we're taught, when we say our truths to the office of equity or HR services, they make us prove our, um, prove that truth, even though an email won't suffice, you know? So it becomes a very, uh, it, it becomes a very intricate, masterful enterprise, and very much I would relate it to plantation politics, where there is a power structure for which slaves can never engage in, the um, not can never, but they have a very difficult time in trying to overthrow the type of power dynamic that the slave master has already um uh, uh, has set up. And they're very smart about it. Colorado actually particularly is very good at this. And I'm going to call the Colorado out in this. And and don't get me wrong, I love Colorado. <laughs> but I'm saying if we really, if Colorado truly wants to better itself, it's got to take a very fierce look at itself. And one thing that Colorado does with regards to whiteness is they're so masterful in their discourse that they will set up this like plantation politics. They will put all the master whips, you know, or the coyotes or the, as, as people of color, but they don't really actually hold power. They're just middle management. They're not even middle management. Right. Um, and then they'll have those middle management do the type, um, carry out the racist practices, you know, onto other, um, workers. Um, so that so that way, when there's, a, when there's an argument against it, they're saying, oh, but we're not the ones who's being racist. The other person who's doing it, the middle-managed person, that person's black or that person's brown. So a good example of this, you see this in the Denver public school area, and you're seeing that um, black principals are being ousted. Black assistant principals are being ousted by false al- allegations by other black principals who are more favored in the larger enterprise. So I've seen this happen in in the university level. I've seen this happen in the educational K-12 era. I've also seen this happen in private and, and, and nonprofit sectors in Colorado. So we've gotta be very discerning because if we don't look at how whiteness operates through people of color, then we're not recognizing how this has really impacted us all.
0: That's so powerful. Thank you, Dr. Matias, for your candid thoughts on how we as diversity and inclusion professionals can improve the practice of leading DNI work in organizations so that we can truly focus our energies on advancing racial justice. Uh, shifting gears a bit, can you share about how your cultural background has impacted your work?
1: That's such an important question. Um, like I said, in all my publications, I've been very forthright with talking about how my brown-skinned peninus has really impacted um, the type of um, experiences I was engaging with. In fact, I have a more recent piece that talked about You know, some of the vitriol that I experienced in the teacher ed program, which is replete with white women, no different from other education spheres, right? It was so vitriolic. At one point, I was thinking, you know, I had one student come to office hours and she refused to sit down. She preferred to tower over me and cross her hands and still yell at me. And the vehemence that I saw, it felt like, it almost felt like I was she was a jealous girlfriend. And I was like, what's going on? What's what's this dynamic that's happening? And so I tested it later, I think my third year at the university, and I had the teacher ed candidates read a piece by Yenli Espiritu about the ideological stereotypes of Asian American men and women. And their responses to that text was quite eye-opening and it really got at why they they felt the need that to talk to me in such a vitriolic manner or they felt entitled to you know so um it, it pretty much showed in the responses that a lot of them kept saying yeah we know that Asian American women are um are always sexual our men oddly enough a lot of them were using our possessing over white men which I found it very odd, and a lot of them talked. One person even talked about how pissed off she was about her white guy, her white guy friend, and how he 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 made a comment like he always wants to fuck Asian American, you know, girls. And she said it was so disgusting. And she talked in length about how much she hated him and, and this and that, and hated this whole process. But little did she ever take a moment to reflect on how then how, does she does she feel towards Asian American women? You know, if she's having all this vitriol mm-hmm. to a, her white men and his fetish over Asian American women, she doesn't ever talk about, well, then how does she also feel about the Asian American woman? Mm-hmm. You know? And I just thought it was very apropos because then I started to realize, man, the way they talked to me was, I kept thinking, like, why do you talk to me like I stole your your partner or something like I'm that girl, that, that mistress. Mm -hmm. And I, I it came out in a lot of those, um, response to Yanli Asperatu's reading. They knew great amounts of this and they have already had and developed very fierce and strong reactions to it. Not realizing that they were projecting that also onto me as a Pinay Asian American woman. And so, it became a very um, tedious task. I mean, I've had people, um, I had one white male student um, who all of a sudden sent me a bunch of emails in the middle of the night that was cussing me out, was telling me who the F do I think I am, you know, and this and that. And the next morning he said, I'm so sorry, I was un- I was under ambient. He eventually dropped the program. Herein lies the latent disrespect towards not only faculty of color, but also women of color, let alone an Asian Pacific American woman, how they feel we're supposed to be subservient and just take in all their BS. Even though he apologized, What the, the biggest question is und- undertaking Ambien, which lowers your, lowers your inhibitions, right? He felt the need to email, of all things, email his Asian-American professor. He had many others. And curse her out with all these uh, latent racial anxieties and gender anxieties. So it goes to show you that these are some kind of subtexts that are in the minds of many people by the time they get into my classroom. And it was exhausting.
0: Dr. Matias, I really appreciate your honesty and vulnerability about the challenges you encountered in educating future educators, especially from your vantage point as a critical race scholar. Can you speak to the sacrifices that you've had to make to stay in this work? And in the end, was it all worth it? I know. And in the end,
1: it was all worth it. It's, it's. I'm in a space where I'm very welcome. I will be heading. I've always wanted to take more um, institutional ownership on creating A more uh, an infrastructure and a program that really is focused on racial justice so I'm having the ability to do that so I'm thankful ever thankful for my experiences there but there were a lot of sacrifices I had to do Um, one I want to be very clear since 2017 I've been living in California flying every week to Colorado and that is particular that's for many reasons but one of the two of the main reasons is that I've been hired to do race and education. That was my job. That was my focus. That's what I presented to the university for which got me hired, that I was going to bring in whiteness into teacher ed. They hired me to do that job. And as I did that job and gained more national and international prominence doing that job, I started to recognize how much hate mail threats from the popular popular culture Um, that was being thrown my way. I've had nonstop harassing emails, um, calling me cunt, bitch, all of the words you can imagine. Um, I've had people call my superiors. I've had packages delivered to my university. I had to call the FBI for some of them. For some of them, I I had to get the Denver police involved. Um, I had to protect my own children at their schools you know, talking to their teachers, making sure that no one talked to them through the gate, because I had one particular stalker who was fixated on my son, who was at the time, I believe he was like seven or eight. Um, This was years ago. But the hate mail continued and continued. And despite the university knowing, I mean, they were, I was just told to forward it to a a lawyer, but I never felt like there was any care for my family. Never was I asked by the administration in the School of Education how I was doing. Never was I asked, offered counseling. Never was I, you know, at one point I just wanted um, uh, parking, you know, to at the time I was pregnant and teaching a night course and getting hate mail and a guy who said, if I see you in the alley, I'm going to let you die, you know? (laughs) And so Mm -hmm. I even just asked can I get like parking closer to the north building, you know, and get that paid for. I was denied. One of the major reasons why I had to make that sacrifice was the safety of my family and myself. I don't feel the university did anything to protect me or to even show that they cared. So in that response, I had to do some drastic measures which was move back to California, make sure my children were safe, and then just fly. I'd fly sometimes at five in the morning and come back to California at 1 a.m. And I would do that multiple times a week, just so that my students would have access to me and that I would provide the service that is needed for the university. So I just want to be very clear. That was particularly the number one reason as to why I had to make these
0: sacrifices. It's so heartbreaking to hear about what you and your family have gone through in the past few years as you continued your work in this area. So um, my next question is, in addition to the sacrifices, what, what other strategies did you need to develop to ensure that you're keeping your personal values and integrity intact?
1: That's a really good question. I mean, I have to admit, it was... It was hard. Things are very hard when people try to attack your personal character and when they try to attack uh, your family. I mean, and I think with me keeping in line and with my virtues is knowing that all the work that I've ever done, I've never done it to put shame because I don't believe in those shame tactics of those so-called social justice warriors. I call them rogue warriors or vigilante <laughs> it's really not social justice if they're using the same tools as the master, right? And whatever issues they have with me personally or just with learning and the resistance to raise, take a step back, talk to me first, <laughs> or just, you know, realize this is a larger body of scholarship. I'm not, I know I had colleagues in the school of ed who thought I made up the word whiteness mm. and one who told me I need to stop talking about whiteness and white supremacy or, or else I won't get tenure, so the, my point is, um, I just need them to step back and read the work and say, "Well, I want them if they believe in social justice, they really know how to. En- they need to know how to engage in whiteness in more healthy ways, and not just hate the hate the messenger who's saying it. You know, uh, I I do understand there were some administrators and some folks in the program that thought I was just trying to talk trash." That's not the point. The point of research is to really investigate very deeply, critique and evaluate, you know, systems that are not working and propose a new possibility and try it. But they weren't at the point to even listen to what was the problem. They were just emotionally reacting to the fact that there was a critique. So it's really important that if we are to engage in a more racially humanizing uh, movement or education or teaching practice, that those um, faculty members, those staff members, that those teachers take a moment to really do a hard look at how they might be engaging whiteness. I'm not calling them malicious at all. I'm just saying, I believe they're well-intentioned at the same time. I also believe they're going about it in a very, um, a very bad way that still upholds white supremacy.
0: I have a quick follow-up question to that. So in addition to being aware of how their white cultural identity may be impacting their interactions with people of color, what else can well-meaning, well-intentioned white people do to advance their commitment to racial justice?
1: Well, I always think the first thing, I know there's been a lot of critique um, coming from communities of color about whites engaging in rating groups. And I still think, um, as much as it's just a, it's a a very precursor, you know, um, step. It nonetheless helps, um, especially for whites engaging in this type of work. You know, start reading a book, and in fact, notice these types of books. You know, like if you're going to read Candy, or if you're going to read Robin DiAngelo, which is great. You know, also notice which books are readily accepted by the mainstream, which means white mainstream, and then. challenge yourself to read a book that makes you feel uncomfortable. I've been told that my book feeling my first book, feeling white and my second book surviving Becky's is a little bit more in depth when it, uh, approaches, uh, whiteness and emotionalities. So, um, I would challenge, you know, go ahead, join those book clubs. But, you know, don't stay in books that make you just feel better about yourself. You know, delve deeper into ones that make you feel discomforted. You know, we say this thing in teaching that we need to be uncomfortable, you know, to learn new things. And absolutely right. I do know that understanding the unit circling in pre-calculus and calculus is not comfortable. But if you really want to learn something new... It's uncomforting, you know, and so they need to learn what it's like to be uncomfortable when learning about race. In fact, I do this tactic in the class where I'm like, you know, in one session I have only students of color talk about how whiteness has impacted them and whites have to learn how to quote unquote bear witness, you know, despite the screaming, despite the accusations, just, just bear witness, you know and just learn how to listen. And then after that, engage in a more healthy conversation, you know? So I really say those are some major steps that whites can engage in. And I do, there are some people, there are particular people, both whites and four people of color who would engage in whiteness that have done some atrocious things, not only to me, but with respects to whiteness. I invite them to to contact me. You know, I am an educator first and foremost, and my job is to teach even the most racist of students, right? If I truly believe transformational education exists, I got to be ready to teach the most racist. And so those who have aggrieved me and they feel self-righteous in their grievance towards me or to, to other folks of color, I think I invite them to send me an email i invite them to call me i invite them to have a dialogue and i also invite them to take a moment to listen to what is it that has been so what is the grievance you know and bear witness and learn to bear witness with that and i think so many whites who engage in this work just like feel like they can say sorry and just move on oops sorry my bad but at the same time they're gonna have to learn how to atone How do we atone for the behaviors that have engaged in such racial harm onto other people? And I think that's the hard aspect when we talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness is readily given, but atonement is a different aspect. And I think that's one big thing whites and for folks of color who have engaged in um, racially atrocious behaviors like making false allegations or you know starting rumor mills or you know partnering with um with powerful white people i think it's really important for them to say to themselves okay how do i atone for this atrocity and once they can actually do that with the person that they aggrieved I think that's, a, that's, that's the amazing, most humanizing
0: challenge anyone can ever do. Dr. Matias, can I ask you a quick question about your use of words and phrases like atone, bear witness, forgiveness? So my Christianized and Catholicized ears, these are very familiar words, but words that are not always used in racial justice contexts, especially in academia. So can you speak to your intentions uh, behind the use of these words and phrases? Um, it's so weird because usually as a former K-12 teacher and a public university professor,
1: I've always separated that. And I've always had a, um, a weird marriage with my Catholic and Christian roots, right? But I think in the last two years, no, I would say in the last three years, since I took my sabbatical and moved to California, I have had a religious um, liberation so to speak, and have returned to the Catholic Church. And I am very intentional when I engage in talks about whiteness and Christianity, both as critique as well as a way to understand. And, you know, the funny thing is, I think there has been um, those rogue social justice warriors who think they are social just. Mm -hmm. Um, I think they they rebuked against it because most of them are atheist or, you know, um, deny the church. I'm not saying that the church in and of itself, has not had um, a history of pillage, um, dehumanization, and war. I'm not saying that, but I'm saying I'm learning how, like, everyone must reconcile some of those issues with a past that is, um, that is, that is um, horrific, atrocious, but also learn how to still fall in faith and love in a God. And I like to coalesce it with saying that just like in my faith in humanity, my faith in God will never waver. Now, religion, which is made by man and and man in itself, can be flawed. You know, man being both uh, all of humanity. Um, so. They may engage in atrocious behaviors that you may not agree with, that actually divert from your love, your true faith in the Lord or true faith in humanity. But I can't write humanity nor the Lord off just because of the behaviors of man. I'm very forgiving. um, All the atrocities that have been done to me, Um, I forgive those people, you know, from the administrator, Mm -hmm. uh, both white and of color. Who tried to turn a blind eye or who had tried to engage in um, active things or students who have engaged in rumor mills. I forgive them, you know, which comes from my Christian Catholic roots. And at the same time, I can be judicious with that forgiveness. In that it doesn't mean ipso facto, you are absolved of your wrongdoing. It means that I have let the power go from what you've done. At the same time, you have not done the work to atone for that, atone for that mis- misdoing. And in not making any atonement, I can say goodbye, full-heartedly, you know, without malice or anything. At the end of the day, everything that has transpired as difficult as it was, and there was so much beauty. I, I, I'm focusing on the negative, but there was so much beauty in my time in Colorado so much peace watching my children grow and finding my partner who I am still happily married today um I think it's just been such an amazing quest and all of it needed to happen because I have such deep loyalties to my students and to institutions I needed some of these atrocities actually because I'm stubborn um I needed them to happen in some way, shape, or form. And I relate this to religion because at the end of the day, I needed them to happen to realize that there's a better life out there for me and that I have to take a new path. That sometimes means diverting from what you've already known. So, um, yes, I'm very intentional about the religious aspects in it. I think there's been pushback for me and my return to my faith with several other folks but at the end of the day, my values are my values and that I cannot harbor anger for the work that I do, resentment, you know, all of that has really gone. And I pray for the folks that still have a lot of um, guilt or really bad self-righteousness even in their behaviors. And I'm hoping that they can find some peace in how they go about the work and we can find a way to get
0: together so that the work for racial justice can be done. Dr. Matias, thank you so much. I truly appreciate you sharing your candid thoughts. Very best of luck on your new professional journey at the University of Kentucky. You will be deeply missed here in Colorado and of course I intend to keep in touch. Our conversation really highlighted for me that we all have a role to play in dismantling oppressive systems that uphold unjust racial hierarchies. And it all begins with being cognizant of our identities and their impacts on everyday decision-making, as well as their impacts on systems that we're all a part of. So while we're seeing renewed interest in the project of justice, the work is far from finished on many, many fronts. Amid all of this, what gives you hope? It's bittersweet, but I think what gives me
1: hope is that that tomorrow will always happen and at the end of the day as as bleak and depressive or any chapter can be it is just a moment in time which shows us the full range of humanity both ho- happy and sad and to know that you're just in, experiencing life in its fullness both positive and negative I know that whenever I'm going through a negative period, that there is something that is hopeful outside. I think for me, I am so ever grateful to the University of Colorado, to the School of Ed. I'm so ever grateful for Denver, Colorado and all oh, freaking amazing food and people that I've met there. I'm so ever grateful to all the colleagues I met at University of Denver. They were bombastic, literally gave me my confidence back. They were amazing faculty and uh, students and staff there. Um, but I'm ever grateful for that. And that is such a hopeful thing to say, even amidst some of the atrocities I've went through. So I look forward to taking all of that experiences and those lessons and even my own mistakes and I'm hopeful to bringing it to a new space that can really, you know, give me the platform to do the work that I've been wanting to do at a greater level. So I'm thankful, I'm hopeful, I'm scared (laughs) um, and nervous, but at overall i believe i believe that in humanity and i have faith in what i do and i think at the end of the day i feel like who i was 10 years ago coming out of ucla excited and ready to
0: you know engage in racial justice and teacher education Thank you for tuning in to Colors of Influence. I'm your host, Maylene Hamto, and you just heard my interview with Cheryl Matias, PhD, a critical race scholar at the University of Kentucky. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to or follow Colors of Influence everywhere you get your podcast. For updates, please follow us on Instagram at Colors of Influence and on Twitter, Colors Influence. Email us your ideas for future topics and guests at pod at colorsofinfluence.com. Support is provided by House of Pod and the Amped Women of Color Podcast Incubator.